This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, it's been nearly three years since its start, and the U.S. is still dealing with the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. Now our group is outlining the steps the government should take to prepare for the next biological threat. Then, after struggling with sometimes deadly delays in care and benefit backlogs years ago, trust in the Department of Veterans Affairs was badly shaken. Now, thanks in part to the efforts of one office, there's been a big increase in trust in the agency. And late last year, the White House released an executive order aimed at improving access to government services. We check in on how agencies are doing. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House wants to spend more than $88 billion to prepare for the next pandemic or biological threat. That number is not too far off from the recommendations of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Ambika Bumb is the organization's deputy executive director. Ambika, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, start by outlining the current biological threat. What does the world look like right now? Yeah. Um, well, not to sound all doom and gloom here, but there are a lot of biological threats ongoing at the moment. Of course, we have the ongoing COVID pan pandemic. There is monkeypox. We've seen traces of polio. We've got highly pathogenic avian influenza to consider and also um, avian uh, African swine fever. There are a, a number of natural threats that exist. And of course, then we've learned that Russia and others are developing biological weapons as well. And so there's always the, the concern of a intentional attack through a biological weapon. So there's a lot to be concerned about and a lot to try to defend against. The commission is calling for an Apollo program for biodefense. Will mounting a defense against infectious diseases be as hard as getting to the moon? <laughs> um, it is as ambitious of a program as that, but it is very doable. We, what the Apollo program is, is laying out what are the science and technology priorities that we really need to tackle and identify to be it identifies what needs to be done with them in order to protect us. So that's from vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, biosurveillance related um, sequencing and PPE, laying out what are the, the tools that we can have in our arsenal to protect against these. And what we've seen with COVID is, is and with the vaccines and what we've seen with the diagnostics there, that it is possible. Now we just need to have a plan to be able to execute effectively whenever any new threat occurs. Well, that that release was um, that report was released in January of 2021. It what was. were some of the major uh, recommendations and what progress has been made since then? Yeah, um, so it, it covers some of these technologies. There were 15 technology priorities that were laid out. And so it starts from diagnostics, the testing that we need. Um, it includes the vaccines to be able to, ident to have a vaccine um, in place for each of the 26 families of viruses that can transmit to humans. Um, and, and do we have that? Is, is that no, already in place? It we is do not. not have that. And we're working towards that and that needs to be in, in our arsenal. We need to have that in place and that requires research funding. It requires the coordination of government agencies. Um, 
and it ha ha requires having a plan to execute on, right? So um, that's the vaccine side of things. There's also making sure we have PPE. We have the right manufacturing in place to be able to produce these tools that are specific for medical countermeasures, um, right? We saw some challenges with manufacturing right now with monkeypox vaccines. Um, so it's laying out 15 technology priorities specifically. And how far along have we gotten? I mean, given the experience that we had with COVID, yeah. I mean, how, what has already been put in place, if anything? So there are a couple of different things that are happening right now um, at the federal levels. The, the White House did put out the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan last year in September. And actually today they're going to be um, discussing their annual update on how that has gone. So we'll hear more about that later today. But um, the president put out the president's budget request, which also lays out um, a large amount of money, $88 billion for pandemic preparedness initiatives. They're working on, in 2018, the National Biodefense Strategy was uh, released, but the implementation plan for that um, had some work that needed to be done. And that is now going to be, they're working on that and hopefully it will be released soon. The Department of Defense is working on revamping their biodefense strategy. So there are different um, pieces of this that are in play right now. It's in an interesting time period because we've just gone through COVID. Um, it's a higher priority and it's moving in many ways. But in terms of fully executing it, it's not there yet. And is that why the commission released a second report called yes. the Athena Report? Yes. So earlier this year, we released the Athena Agenda, which was specific recommendations on how to actually achieve those uh, 15 technology priorities that were laid out in the Apollo Report. So how much would all this cost? How much would Congress have to allocate if all your recommendations were fully uh, implemented? Yes, we've laid out that it, it's... Um, $100 billion over 10 years. And so, yes, that's what we think it will take to be able to achieve this. And is it worth it to the American taxpayer? Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The amount of money this saves in the bigger picture, if you're looking just at financials, investing that money now prevents deaths. It, uh, it, it impacts our economy. I mean, I'm sure you've had many people speaking about the impacts of this on a broad scale for the country in whole. This is just a penny to be able to save hundreds later. And, and, and does it really work? I mean, can global pandemics actually be avoided? Or is this just something that we are going to have to live with and we just need to be a little bit better prepared for it? They can be avoided. Uh, we can't prevent having outbreaks. There will be natural um, diseases that arise, but we can prevent them from turning into a pandemic. So that's by stemming them and containing them as they first um, approach. So we have to be able to identify them quickly. We have to have eyes on the ground, which is where the diagnostics and testing piece has to. There has to be good communication of those testing results to a central source so we can track everything. And then you have to release the vaccines and the therapeutics that are necessary to treat to stem it from further um, spreading. So. And you alluded to monkeypox earlier in the program. What have we learned from that outbreak? What do we know about how that's being managed? So monkeypox, we first learned of it in May. And um, there are some interesting pieces here to look at. And um, initially, it took 35 days for the testing to be available, to go from being in the CDC's public health laboratories into commercial laboratories. So testing ramped up from less than 100 
to a week to 6,000 a week to now 80,000 tests a week. So there has been ramping up, but we needed that early on right off the bat to be able to to um, better get a hold of the numbers of where things are. Vaccinations, while we were better prepared for this disease because we already had vaccines in the national stockpile, however, the quantity was not sufficient because there were some that had expired and there were many um, amounts of it that were out in Denmark and bringing that over, that delayed response was also not ideal. Fortunately, right now we're seeing that we've, we've gotten past the peak and it looks like we're on a, a decline in the number of cases, but we can't ever just sit back and say it's over. We've seen with COVID. And we'll certainly watch a that. A reemergence, yeah. Exactly. Ambika, thank you so much for being on the program. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having us. Coming up, a team at the VA is working to make it easier for veterans and their families to access their benefits and care. The Deputy Chief Veterans Experience Officer joins us next. We'll be right back. The Department of Veterans Affairs oversees the care of nearly 9 million vets. Within the agency, there's a team working to make sure the experience of accessing benefits is easy and seamless. Barbara Morton is the Deputy Chief Veterans Experience Officer at the VA. She's also a finalist for the Service to America medals. Barbara, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. So the Veterans Experience Office was created in 2014. Remind us about the wait times back then and why that office was created. Yeah, absolutely. So the Veterans Experience Office, as you mentioned, uh, was sort of born out of a crisis. And that happened back in April 2014, uh, the VA Medical Center wait time crisis. Very difficult time for veterans, of course. Difficult time for the department. Um, at the time that summer, we had a new secretary, Secretary Bob McDonald, who came in. And he is and was an industry guy, um, Procter & Gamble times 20, 30 years. And, and one of the things that he noticed and thought as a key symptom of what had happened in Phoenix was the fact that we VA did not have this sort of enterprise-wide mechanism to channel the voice of the customer to understand what was going on sort of in the experience realm. So he established this office back in January 2015, and it was one of the first in government and certainly the first in VA. And so as you said, it was a very difficult time for, yes. for the VA. Why did you want to work there? I mean, the, <laughs> the veterans experience was really not good. It, it was a t it was definitely um, yeah I mean we were we were setting starting at a baseline uh, that was that was not a great baseline for us but when I was asked to join I came over in July of 2016 I thought to myself what better mission would it be than to help earn and build and sustain that trust with veterans and their families year over year and at scale so I certainly couldn't resist that challenge um, not to say it was super easy it was a startup at the time and we continue to build and grow but it's been an incredible journey. Well, you created the first VA trust report to really better understand where to make changes. Can you talk about that and what you found? Yeah, absolutely. So, so trust, you know, going back to 2016, 2015 timeframe, we knew we wanted to baseline to see where we were with the sentiment of veterans and trust because we knew a trust had been broken um, during the Phoenix crisis. And so at that time, we, we asked a very simple question. Do you trust VA to fulfill this country's commitment to veterans? And at the time, the, the agreement or strong agreement on that sort of Likert scale one to five that veterans shared with us was about 55%. So grade school times, that was probably a D, D minus. We knew we had only one place to go, which is up. So fast forward to today, trust has increased. Um, same question asked by over 20%. And what our current secretary, Secretary McDonough, who is an incredible champion of customer experience and the veteran experience asked us to do was create 
this trust report, which we update quarterly and post on va.gov trust. So we can kind of collectively hold ourselves accountable to that measure and other measures around experience and make sure that we're tracking any improvements and, and areas of opportunity to, to continue to improve as well. You know, I know you're you're collecting a lot of data, but the question is how do you ensure that, that the data that you collect through surveys and things like that actually gets used and makes its way into improvements for vets and their families? And, and you're not just collecting data for the sake yes. of information. Right. And I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. That is such a, um, that's the hardest part, right, is to actually translate data and insights into tangible actions. And so one of the things that we did when we started this journey back in 2017 is we wanted to sort of prove the concept of what an evidence-based impact looks like in the experience realm. So we started with our siblings in the Veterans Health Administration and the healthcare space to really make that impact and understand how this framework could actually work. So starting with a methodology called human-centered design, which is really a fancy way of just saying, talk to, talk to veterans and your customers, understand what matters most to them, and really dive in and target those areas to respond to those uh, particular moments that matter and areas of opportunity. So we use that methodology coupled with surveys, to your point, and really have set up a framework that we've been able to deploy at scale to really translate those insights into tangible trainings, tools, artifacts, leadership practices, really bridging that data so it's not data for data's sake, but it's actually data turned into impact. Well, Barbara, let's talk specifics. What did you do to improve the website, va.gov? Yeah, VA.gov. So this is a really, really kind of the crown jewel, I think, experience of, of for veterans and sort of how we VA have been able to respond to their needs and wants directly. So back in, in 2018, we'd started to hear signals from veterans about, hey, you know, where is the digital front door? I want to interact with VA, transact with VA. There are lots of websites. I find it very confusing. And so what we did is we actually went to veterans and we sort of asked them a simple question. If you want to interact with the department digitally, which web property of the many that we have do you sort of gravitate toward? Is it VA.gov? Is it MyHealthyVet? Is it eBenefits? Is it Vets.gov? And they came back to us and they said, you know, VA.gov, that's a strong brand. That is where I naturally would orient to if I don't know where to go. So it was at that moment that the, the department made this decision to have VA.gov be sort of the, the digital front door for the department. And over the years, we've sort of migrated the other web properties underneath that umbrella, but we also didn't stop there. We not only sort of identified it as the front door, but we also redesigned it with our siblings in the chief technology officer's office and across the department using this practice of human-centered design by asking veterans, what do you wanna see? What are the top transactions that are right up front? Here's a personalized profile. You can log in and change your address like you do in the real world outside of government. So it's been an incredible improvement. And what we do is of course, we wanna measure the impact on the back end. And before and after launch of this new website, increase in satisfaction has, has risen by like 20%. So and, and positive, that experience is really impactful, yep. And Barbara, really quickly, I mean, are you sharing this experience across other agencies so yes. that they can also learn from this? Yeah, absolutely. And we always say every agency is different. You know, VA has done it. It's a way. It's not the only way. But we've put together some, some artifacts. The CX cookbook, I'll plug that, is a way for our siblings across government to understand how they might be able to build and sustain their own CX program as well. All right, Barbara. Well, congratulations on the award. And thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Up next, a former longtime government executive at the General Services Administration shares how agencies are implementing an executive order to improve customer experience. Stay with us.
Late last year, President Biden issued an executive order aimed at improving customer experience and rebuilding Americans' trust in the federal government. Martha Doris is a former executive at the General Services Administration. She's currently a consultant for government and industry on improving customer service. Martha, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. Glad to be here. How would you rate agencies overall uh, and how they've done in implementing President Biden's uh, the executive order? So, so I think that the, you know, the, the government's a big entity, so you can't rate agencies, you know, as a whole. I think that there's there's anywhere in maturity from, you know, a one to a five. So I think that it's it's definitely varies across agencies. I think that agencies are really still in the process of figuring out everything they need to do um, in relation to the executive order because the executive order isn't even uh, doesn't sit there in isolation. It also connects with Section 280 of A11. It also connects to the 21st century idea and the president's management agenda. So it's a it's a compendium of like a government CX policy framework. So what are some examples of agencies that have done a good job at making changes and why do you think they were successful? So, so I think the number one thing to make an agency successful is is the leadership and the agency from the top. And, and I think that's been proven through um, the VA is probably the most mature and has the most successes between having a, you know, a, a chief veteran experience officer. They've begun to include employee experience in, in their, uh, their experience program. They've been able to uh, create regulations within their agency so that anything that happens through an executive order, you fear that it's going to get momentum and then you're going to lose it when you change administration. So they've been able to, to put it in their regulations to, to avoid that. Another thing where the reason why we want to get some legislation on this is so we can continue this momentum. There's also a lot of things in the executive order in terms of putting per customer experience in the SES performance plans. And I think VA has done a good job in infusing veteran experience in the way they conduct business, which is also one of the goals within the executive order, in their budget process, in their performance management process, and in their um, strategic planning process. And then they have a lot of technology innovations and, again, from the top going down through their their veteran experience office and out into all of the 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 uh, services within um, the VA. And taking a step back, Martha, I mean, ultimately, why is this so important? So, you know, we, we've um, it, this is one of the reasons why we had a little bit of stalling, I think, up front, because people look at the way it's customer experience is used in the private sector and it's around loyalty and revenue. And that does uh, relate to the government as well, but there's many other reasons within the government. And building trust in government is one of the biggest reasons. I mean, there's been an OECD report recently that, that demonstrated that reliable government services is one of the major drivers to improving trust in government. It's actually more efficient, increases employee engagement, and actually improves the lives of citizens. So there's really a, uh, it's a win-win-win all around in terms of 
implementing the practices, the strategies, and the methodologies within customer experience. And you created the Service to the Citizen Award program to highlight the, the people working to make a difference in customer service. Explain a bit more about it and the motivation behind it. Well, uh, thank you for asking about that. You know, that's sort of my my baby, baby and hope, hopefully my legacy. Um, and when I left the government and wanted to bring this discipline to the federal government um, in, a, in a more uh, active way, I looked at why the government hadn't adopted these practices. And one of the reasons was recognition for the work that people do in this area. Most of the recognition programs are around implementing you know, cool technology or they, they go to the C-suite. And I wanted to, to recognize and honor and celebrate those unsung heroes from the bottom to the top, you know, anywhere from the person who answers the phone or creates a social media strategy to provide information to their customers, all the way up to OMB who created the PMA and and issued the, you know, created the executive order. So it's been a, a, a life, you know, a, passion of mine and a, a project that I've I'm very feels very strongly about and, and Martha can you just highlight just one of the honorees and and what their accomplishments be are well one of the 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 government executive of the year this year is dr. Patricia Hayes from the VA and she's focused her career on women's health and it's a women's health at the VA is a perfect example of how not understanding who your customers are in the VA that your veterans are the percentage of women and the the healthcare that they were getting, and then turning the information that you get from understanding your customers and their experience into a uh, a project and making a difference in you know in communities that ne didn't necessarily have the focus on them um, previously. All right. Well, Martha, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this. Thank you so much, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. 
Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.